You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week. One article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hey, everybody. Ken Davenport here. This is the Producer's Perspective podcast. And look, there's no doubt about it. Broadway is fueled by musicals. And since music is the root word of musicals, I thought it would be fitting to talk to the guy who's responsible for all the people who play that music in those musicals. Please welcome to the podcast, the president of Local 802. I can't pronounce his name as beautifully as he can. Mr. <laughs> Tino Gaglieri. Welcome, Tino. It's good to be here, Ken. Thanks for uh, having me. To how close was I with the name? Not close at all. Not, give it to us. It's Gagliardi. Let me just say that the, one of the greatest memories of me working on my very first show and actually of all the shows I work on is this magical moment called the Zitz Pro. Oh, yeah. Uh, where we come in and which the first time we hear the orchestra and the cast together. And I remember the first time I went in there and I had heard from someone like, oh, yeah, the orchestra, they, they have like four sessions beforehand. And then this is where we put it all together. And I remember thinking, how in the hell is this going to sound good at all? And, of course, it was amazing. And that's when I was reminded that, of course, New York City has the most brilliant musicians <laughs> in the world. Uh, and you are the head of all of them. Well, I, yes, I'm the designated bargaining agent, in the words of uh, labor anyway. But, yeah, I advocate and represent the musicians that work on Broadway. So tell me how you ended up in this position. I assume you started as a musician? I did. I'm a trumpet player. And um, I... Primarily musicals, uh, shows. I also did a lot of freelance concert work and recording as well. You know, there was a time when there was a lot more recording session work in New York than there is now. So did you play in the pits? I a... did. I did. I probably played in all of the pits at this point in one way or the other, either as a chairholder myself or as a substitute musician. What was the first pit you played in? Uh, a chorus line. A chorus no, line. At the Schubert Theater. That's right. Back in 1985 or 86. I don't remember. <laughs> Were you in the first uh, group of musicians or did you sub into that one? I was a sub. I was a substitute musician for that. That was the first, my first entry into Broadway. So one of the things I think the listeners out there may not know, because frankly, we can't see what's going on in the pit half the time. What's it like to be a musician in the pit? That's a that's a that's a hard question to answer. I mean, um, the the Broadway musician is a, a very specific kind of breed of musician because you have to be very fluent in many different styles of music. In other words, you're not. Sometimes you have to play symphonically. Sometimes you have to play more pop. Sometimes you got to play commercial jazz, that kind of thing. So you really have to have a finger and an ability to actually play all those different different styles of music. And that's actually what attracted me to working in theater in the first place was because I really didn't want to be just one type. I wanted to cover all that kind that ground, I guess, is the best way to put it. Actually, I'm already learning something because I never thought of it that way. A, a classical musician plays classical music That's right. all day long. Mm -hmm. But a Broadway musician may have to jump into all different types yeah, of Yeah, you music. may be playing a legit line and then have to blow 16 bars of, you know, a hunk of hunk or something like that, you know? 
Uh, what was the favorite pit you played in? What was the music oh, you loved to play the best? God, that's a hard question to answer. You know, I played in some really great pits. Of course, line, of course, being one of them. You know, playing with the Cats musicians. You know, the, it's it's you know Victor Victoria. You know, how to succeed with uh, Matthew? You remember you remember that the Broadway? Oh my God, that yeah. was a fantastic. Production. Yeah, and every one of them were every one of those experiences were unique in one way or the other you know victor victoria was was kind of special to me because i liked the book and i thought the orchestrations were just fantastic but that really goes you can say that about a chorus line as well some of the finest orchestrating on broadway i believe was was the group that put together a chorus line so how did you go from playing in the pit to an administrative and then an executive position? What attracted you to getting onto the other side of the pit? Well, you know, my family has long been part of the labor movement. You know, my my uh, my family is more from the building trades. And, um, you know, as my parents coming in and my grandparents coming in as immigrants, it was really the, the unions that really helped them maintain a standard that they could make a living on. And so I, I was always exposed to that part of, of the world, I guess. And, and no, there's no different as far as the craft union that is the, uh, local 802, for instance. And, um, I guess what really attracted me, what got me started was actually I was subbing at Cats at the time and the chair of the theater committee was playing that show. And he says, you know, you got some pretty good ideas. Why don't you come in and talk to the committee? And at that point I was hooked. And that was, I think, 1998. It was some time ago. And, uh, and of course, what really, um, sunk the hook for me was, uh, the battle that we had in 2003. I was on the, um, I was on the committee. I was on the negotiating committee for those very difficult negotiations. And uh, there were some things I liked about it, and there were a lot of things I didn't like about the process. And um, it was that point in time that I realized that, you know, you can't stand on the outside and throw rocks at something. If you really want to institute a change, you've got to be a part of it. And it was in 2003 that I ran for the, the union's executive board. And I was active, you know, ever since then, you know. Uh, what made me finally decide to go here was... A matter of what I viewed as the, basically I wasn't happy with the way the union was being run. And as I said earlier, I've always felt that if you're going to make a change, you've got to be a part of the change. So that was when I originally ran for recording vice president and I lost. So I went back to playing the trumpet. And uh, things continued to go in a direction that I was not happy with. And so I ran for uh, president back in 2009, so I've been I've been here since 2010, January 2010. So, what are your day-to-day -day responsibilities as the president? Of how many how many members are there in 802? Just between 7,500 and 8,000. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's a lot. We're the largest local union of professional musicians in the world. There's no big there's no bigger local, and of course, the AFM is the largest union of professional musicians globally. And you represent the musicians because a lot of people may think 802 and those of us in the theater community, because we are very self-centered, we always go 802. Well, those are the Broadway musicians, but it's it's I not know. just the Broadway musicians. You know, Ken, I'm really glad you brought that up because it absolutely is not. I mean, you know, we have, you know, whether it's a, a club downtown or, you know, something going on at Lincoln Center, it's, it's not only Broadway. It's the casual jobs, the hotels, the the the, you know. 
like I said, the nightclubs. You know, we have a lot of initiatives right now that are going on to try and address the concerns of those musicians as well. You know, Broadway is definitely a cornerstone. It's a legacy agreement. It's been around for a long time. Um, and it does employ probably the greatest number of musicians under a single CBA. But as you said, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, I can should remind you of last summer when we were dealing with the Metropolitan Opera, as an example. You know, New York Philharmonic, New York City Ballet, of course, New York City Opera is back. Uh, but then there's the other work, like uh, 54 Below, where we successfully were able to negotiate an agreement that would accommodate both, both the club and the musicians. And we're very happy about that. It reminds me, actually, when we were talking to, to Jimmy Clavey, Local One, mm -hmm. it's a very similar situation. Right. We tend to think just Broadway, but you represent the interests of 7,500, 8,000 people in all areas. That's right. And as a member of the executive committee of the AFM, I also have to take under my wing the, the, all the musicians in, in the United States and Canada. So the interests of someone that's playing on Broadway may be very different from the interests of someone playing in a hotel or playing at the Met or... How do you deal with – because your responsibility, I imagine, is to hear every, what I have to, Yeah, I negotiate all those agreements, and you're right. There, there are, and that, that's where um, I really have to step in and make sure that I have to be aware of what's going on in those other areas so that we don't agree to something that could possibly undermine what already exists somewhere else, for instance. You know, it's really kind of a hard part of the job because, as you said – you know, musicians doing and playing at one venue may have a completely different set of ideals and um, issues than someone who's working on Broadway or the New York Philharmonic or a club. Is there a prevailing concern among all amongst all musicians across all of the agreements? Like one thing you hear more often than others? It really depends on what it is you what you're dealing with. I mean, for instance, you know, at the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Philharmonic, they're not that concerned about technology because they know that this is the art form and this is the way it is and this is the way it's going to continue to be. Uh, there are other areas of concern in theater, obviously, where, you know, technology um, can do things that would hurt us in the long run. But and I want to say that very carefully because it's not that we're a union of Luddites by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's more like the ideal of what live performance represents. And, you know, as a union, you know, people say, well, it's, it's, he's the union, he's got, you know, wages, working conditions. That's, but it's really not the case for the musicians because we are, we, we are the ones that produce the, the art. And, we are equally, if not more, concerned about the standard and quality of the live performances that we're a part of. That's really important to us. And when we see something happening that cheapens what we do, it makes it very difficult from an artistic point of view. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you are musicians and artists, just like the actors exactly. are artists yeah, as well. Yeah, so, right. of course, you're just trying to protect that art. Mm -hmm, exactly. And, they, and, you know, we know what we're talking about. Yeah, because you're you're actually perfect example. You're a musician. Mm -hmm. You yourself. Yes, you're exactly not an administrator right. or an executive. You're, right. or, or executive. You're, well, I had to learn to be, but yes. <laughs> How did you learn to be? Well, I, on the ground, basically. You know, I mean, um, as as I said earlier, I'm also the executive director, which means I'm basically oversee all the operations that go on in the building. Um, we have two unions in our building. We have, uh, you know, the office professionals, Local 153, and we also have an in-house union called the Organization of Union Representatives that we have to we have to negotiate with and we have to, you know, provide a good work environment for. So it's an interesting part of the job when you find yourself on that side of the table. 
So you mentioned the 2003 strike, and you were not the president at the time, but you were on the committee. The theater committee. The right. theater committee. So talk to me a little bit about that. And so, you know, many of the listeners out there may not have been around. I was actually the company manager of Gypsy at the time, oh, which no was kidding. in the Bernadette Peters yeah, Gypsy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we were in rehearsals. Um, so we, we canceled our rehearsals when, when we didn't have the musicians. But many people may not remember what that was about. So what was the, the, crux of the issue there, why those negotiations were so difficult. Well, there was um, there was a, a, a there had been a 10-year moratorium on a discussion of the minimums from the, the minimum number of musicians um, for each theater, which is based on theater size. And um, that came up and right out of the box at the negotiations, the league came with a, a number that's round. And we don't like round numbers. Unions generally don't like round numbers. <laughs> and that zero was, uh, was, was something very difficult for us. And that, that was the gist of it. I mean, it was the, 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 the gist of it was the fact that, you know, they were looking to, uh, get rid of that little bit of artistic control that we have. And, Obviously, that was a difficult time for both. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. The whole thing. I, I remember walking down 8th Avenue and seeing all my colleagues on the street. I was doing Oklahoma at the time, at the Gershwin. And um, that might have closed a week or two before we went on strike. Cause, but, you know, to see your colleagues on the street and know that you had a hand in making that happen was a very, very difficult thing for me. Yeah, I can't even imagine, actually. How do you... How do you overcome, knowing that, of course, you are doing what's right for overall, what you believe, but still you have to face, your, you're in the pit with them. Yeah, yeah, you got to face your colleagues and you hope that you have the support and that they have the faith in you to do the right thing. You know, we work on a committee system in this in this local, as a lot of locals do, I'm sure. Um, and to, in order for me to have been part of this process, I had to have been, I had to be elected by the negotiating committee as someone that they can trust to present their best interests. So that's part of the battle. As far as getting over it, I don't think you ever get over it, quite frankly. I think that that comes into play every time I sit at the negotiating t table, knowing that, you know, something bad could really happen, you know. So, and it's something you got to be prepared for. There's only been one other strike. Was there one other 802 musician strike in the history of Broadway? I think there was one before. Yeah, in 1975. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and that was another minimum issue, I believe. Same issue. Yeah. yeah. So it seems to me, and I'm a, a bit on the outside of this, uh, but things since then uh, have been a little calmer, right? We've gone through a couple of negotiations since then. Actually, no. We're 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 gearing up now for um, for negotiations with the Broadway League. Um, the the agreement expired in 2011, so we we were able to put together a five year deal after my first year in office. So um, there's only been one agreement, and this will be the second one, at least in my tenure. Mm -hmm. And how would you characterize relations in general between producers and? You know, it's it's hard it it, it's hard it's hard to describe a relationship with a specific producer because we really don't deal with specific producers, right? I mean, um, the Broadway League represents the theater owners and the producers, and the director of labor relations for the league is really the one I have the most interaction with, and I'm happy to say that we have a really good relationship. Would you like to have relationships with individual producers? Does, well, I'm not saying I don't. No, I know. Uh, do, you, do they call you and you're like, hey, yeah, occasionally, yeah, sure, sure. There's a couple that I'm not going to mention, but yeah. Of course, I don't want to. Only mention the ones you don't like. <laughs> I'd love uh, to hear your least yeah, favorite. Yeah, no, I'm sure a lot of people would like to hear that. <laughs> but 
but but you don't you you like to have that kind of communication absolutely with folks? absolutely because I think there's a there's this feeling I know in my head of like ooh we we shouldn't be reaching out to the union head I mean this is a we should let the league deal with it but I'm sometimes think that things get solved much quicker if there's just faster communication I agree with stuff. you I agree with you and that does happen on occasion a lot of people are talking about. Uh, the recording of shows in video, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I just live streamed Daddy Long Legs right. off Broadway. And this is, you know, a couple shows have done it, the final performance of Rent, et cetera. What do you in general think about that concept? Forget even the contractual, the 802. Whatever the obligations are under the yeah, contract. What do you, you do, do you that? think that's a good idea for the theater or a bad idea you for know, the theater? You know, I've been living with that question since I started on the theater committee, uh, because I think it was back in the 90s, the late 90s, when, um, what was it, BTN, the Broadway Television Network or something like that? Bruce Branwyn, do you remember that? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, I think he did He did Company. He did, oh, the first one was Sophisticated Ladies. That was the very first. But it never really, I mean, we always had an agreement with him, but it never really took off. And there was a big concern. I think the league had that similar concern, that if we start putting this stuff out, either in theaters or available pay-per-view or however you want to, whatever, you know, whatever delivery system we want to use, that, you know, maybe on Ethel, who lives in, 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 you know, Webster, Connecticut, will decide to keep the car in the driveway and just, you know, pay the, you know, 20 bucks or whatever and just watch it on at home. Um, there's always been that concern. I don't know if that really has transpired on Broadway anyway, because to the degree that it's been done, it's kind of been de minimis, you know. Um, I know there were arguments that were made that ticket sales went up after uh, Phantom became uh, a motion picture, but the fact of the matter is that was a cinematic production. It wasn't really taking the live show and putting it out there, you know. Look, it's a, it's a question that is being asked at the Metropolitan Opera, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not, I mean, there are two schools of thought. We're, we're getting opera out to people that had never experienced and therefore creating a larger base, right? And there are other people that are saying, well, you know, there's no blackout, so you're cutting the legs off, you know, people that would normally buy tickets. So it's a hard question to answer. I don't have the answer for that. I don't know that there's enough data available to actually make a definitive answer on that. If you know something, let me know. <laughs> I'm starting to How do you it. feel about it? As a producer, how do you feel oh, boy, about that? I thought I was asking the questions here. Well, so, no, I'd like to get your perspective on that. You know, I am a big believer. I think we've seen over the last several years several filmed versions of musicals that are running now from Phantom, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. Chicago, Chicago, Rent. Yeah. And what we've seen is that the box office has always gone up as a result of them, even when the movies are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there is now that's partly, I think, because of the movie companies spend so much money purely on the advertising of it. So when you see Hairspray or you see Rent or Phantom in so many places, naturally, the, all those impressions add up to something. Yeah, for me, it would be seeing a movie of a currently running Broadway show, a cinematic production. And the curiosity is, how do they do this on stage? I want to see this live. I want to see how they really do this. You know what I mean? I will say that as we were live streaming Daddy Long Legs, I was watching it on my computer in the lobby of my little theater, and then I would sneak in and open the door and watch it going on live. And I will tell you, as I'm sure everyone listening can imagine, and you for sure, the difference was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Like it was good on it was good on screen, and then you'd walk in and you'd hear the lush music and the voices just overwhelming. You're like, oh right. This is why you go to things right, live. Right. Yeah, but you know, you got to, the technology is out there, right? I mean, if you look at, if you look at a DVD of the Carmen that the Met did several years ago of the HD, the HD broadcast, 
I mean, they've got, you know, how many cam HD cameras set up, and they're catching every angle. You're seeing parts of singers that you've never seen before. And, I mean, that has its attraction, too, I would imagine. And, you know, we have a situation now. I mean, I have it in my own living room. I've got a big old TV with a theatrical sound set up. And, you know, I can sit there. It's like I'm in a movie theater. And you're getting all that sound from all around. You know what I mean? But you're absolutely right. Even that will never replace the experience of sitting there in the center orchestra and seeing and hearing all of that together. Yeah. You're a musician yourself, so what do you think of the state of music on Broadway right now? Like, what do you think? Are we, was there, a, do you long for the golden age of Broadway musicals and the Rodgers and Hammerstein? Do you think the composers today are doing it justice? Do you think we're... I think composers today are doing it justice. I think the type of music, I mean, tastes change, right? I mean, that's the nature of music. And I think Broadway is doing a good job of accommodating those changes in taste. Uh, do I long for the golden age? No, but I really appreciate when a production that uses like the original Robert Russell Bennett orchestrations to do one of those classic musicals. You got to appreciate that. I mean, I remember when I saw South Pacific several years ago at Lincoln Center. And um, I don't know if you saw that production. Oh, sure. And when that when that thing went back in the orchestra, I had goosebumps. It was exciting. You know what I mean? So, um, and we've got some good productions like that right now that are running that also offer that kind of lush, full sound from 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 an orchestra pit. And from a musician standpoint, that's really important. But it's also important to be able to have a show like Hamilton running that is far more now and today and what's happening, you know, and, and the cats in the pit there are just having a blast doing it, you know? So I don't so, know if I answered your question, but. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly it. So what would you say to a producer right now? Cause, because, of course, as we all stare at these budgets, and you certainly know the crazy risks involved with this, with this industry and the relatively few successes. And we all want our shows to sound as magnificent as they can. So what would you say to a producer who's debating the number of musicians or like how should I use 17, should I use 16, should I use 20, 19? What, what's your reason why we should use the biggest we can and not think dollars and cents? You can't make, you can't fill a theater full of sound just by raising the volume down. Okay. I mean, I think that's been, I mean, you have a small band and you're trying to fill up and you're trying to get all that space and you turn the volume up. It doesn't make it sound fuller. You know, you don't buy a sound system with 2000 watts because you want to listen to the music loudly. You do it because you want to get that clarity at any volume. Um, and I think that's what I would do. I would remind the producers of that, that, yeah, maybe you can get someone to orchestrate it for, you know, six or seven musicians. But what is it that you really want to do? What is it that you, you're trying to accomplish with this? And, and uh, like I said, remember that loudness does not equal full, you know. Does that make sense? I couldn't have said it at all. Never mind better than mm -hmm. that. Because actually, I think to a layman, sometimes loud to people like me who are uneducated look i actually played trumpet when i was a kid no. <laughs> uh, not very well but i played uh, but i remember so I, I consider myself a layman musician i can fake a little piano of course but to me sometimes louder equals just better you know which is of course not true right. but that's sometimes the easy way to think of it oh just turn it up and of course that's not it i just don't know the details of the richness of all that you know there was a there was um, a, a, a colored copier 
uh, commercial that was on a couple of years ago where they started out with just, you know, this is this printer and it was like rinky dink and then this is this printer and it's, it's a little better but not quite there. And then they said, this is our printer and it's like a full symphony orchestra. You know what I mean? And it had to do with the number of pixels, the number of dots, I guess. It was an ancient printer and, and the more the better, that kind of thing, you know? So what do you think about the advent of technology in music and where we're headed over the next 10 to 20 years what do you think what more technology do you think will come in to the pits of orchestras i don't know how to answer that you know like i said earlier um we're not a union of luddites and we certainly recognize that the technology is there um but you know technology and technology is generally good when it makes things better when it makes it cheaper it's bad. And uh, there's, a, like I said, the technology has advanced to the degree now where, you know, to someone who doesn't know any better or hears something for the first time, maybe, maybe it doesn't make a difference. You know, and my fear, of course, again, has to do with, you know, maintaining the quality of live performance that, you know, cheap will end up being better. And that, that's, that's, that, I guess that's the biggest problem, you know. What's the biggest myth you think people have about Broadway pit musicians that you would love to say, that's not true? There's several. Which one do you want me to address? All of them. You know, I mean, the big joke for a long time when I was coming up was like the reason we're local 802 is because that's when we show up to work. And that's not the case. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> 758. No, 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 no. That was always a funny part because, you know, they would always complain that, well, you know, everybody else has, a, has to sign in at, that, you know, at half hour or whatever. And the musicians, don't, it's because the musicians are in the pit warming up. They're getting ready to play. They have to be on top of everything when that conductor brings the downbeat down, you know. Sure, you may have someone come in at the last minute because they caught up somewhere. That happens on stage as well. You know what I mean? We're no different than that. We got to warm up just like the actors have to warm up. You know, and if we do that at home, maybe we can shave a few minutes off on the way in. But you know, that's a myth. I think I would like to dispel that. You know, we, we're constantly showing up at the last minute. <laughs> okay, my uh, last question for you, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin shows up here at the 802 offices, thanks you for your incredible service to the community, and says, I want to, because of that contribution, I want to grant you one wish. Just one. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you so crazy? Makes you angry, upset, you can't sleep at night, whatever it is. The one thing that if you had the chance, you'd ask this genie to wish away with the snap of a finger. I'd have to ask for like 50 more questions. No. Like 50 more wishes, rather. I don't know that I could do it in one in one issue. I mean, it's interesting. You know, Broadway for Local 82 is, is a living being. That con This contract, okay, there's a lot of components to this contract. Um, a lot of times we're grouped in with the actor production contract without, without paying much attention to what our work rules are, thinking that maybe rightfully or wrongfully, I don't know, that, you know, everything is in line, and it's not. Um, so, like I said, there are different issues that come up at different times. So it's really hard. You know what? If we get the producer, I'll read the contract. That might be a start. <laughs> That's a very good statement. You know, I, I wonder how many actually have. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I certainly read it as a company manager when right. I was coming up, but I and have certainly looked at it a couple times because I have that background. But I wonder if we polled the producers how many have actually read the contracts that they are – 
Right. And, and they could by. prove me wrong. Maybe maybe they're just doing it to poke me. Who knows? But, you know, a lot of times, you know, if there's a conflict that shows up somewhere, it's sometimes it's just a matter of clarifying what the work rule is, you know. And, you know, another thing, another myth, if you will, is that the union is inflexible with nothing but flexible. You know, uh, get, putting Broadway aside, you know, because we have to live within the constraints of that agreement. But, you know, a lot of work gets done and musicians' product is exploited without the union knowing because whoever is producing is afraid that, well, if I go to Local 802, I won't be able to afford to do this. And that's just not the case. It really isn't. So, so if producers want to use the best musicians in the world, which are in this city, they should just reach out and talk to you. Yes, they should. They should. Again, Working within the parameters, I mean, for Broadway, that obviously we have a collective bargaining agreement that would apply. But, but yeah, I mean, if something new, I, this is probably geared more towards some of the clubs that we deal with and and other other areas where you know we can offer flexibility. We do, and you know what, the musicians aren't as expensive as everybody thinks they are. <laughs> and just one more thing: if there's a musician listening and wants to join 802, can People just walk up and join? What's the process? Absolutely. They can come to the second floor here at um, 322 West 48th Street between 8th and 9th. Uh, we're open from uh, 930 to 5. They can come in and talk to us. They can come and visit me on the fifth floor if they like. I'd be more than happy to welcome anybody to join. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us, and thanks for everything that you do to protect live music here in the city and on Broadway. I want to thank all of you for listening. Oh, it, look at that. It's like Labor Month here. Next yes, it is. Next week, <laughs> we have Kate Schindel, the president of Actors Equity Association, with us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Tino. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Ken. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.